0: Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Amber Luong talks with Dr. Naweed Chidauri about his recent article, Association of Cytokine Profile with Prior Treatment Failure and Revision Surgery in Chronic Rhinosinusitis.
1: Hi, welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host today, Dr. Amber Luong from the McGovern Medical School of the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. I have invited Dr. Naweed Chaudhary, who is an assistant professor of otolaryngology at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. We're going to talk about his recently accepted paper that is currently in early view entitled Association of Cytokine Profile with Prior Treatment Failure and Revision Surgery in Chronic Rhinosinusitis. Welcome back, Naweed, to Scope It Out podcast. Um, I understand that it's been maybe a couple of years since the last time we had you on.
0: Yeah, it's been a while. It was uh, before the pandemic, and uh, I think we did it old school via a phone call, but now we've got Zoom and everything's all about remote work and telemedicine and all that. So it's a very different time, but I'm happy to be back. (laughs) Excellent. So
1: yeah, it's definitely much more exciting. We used to have to be tied to the office with a particular landline to be able to do these interviews, and now everyone's very uh, Verse, as you said, on Zoom, and so can do it anywhere. I appreciate your time talking to me about this study and, you know, really looking forward to it. But before we kind of dive in, I wanted to get a little bit of background about you and learn a little bit more about you, your, your research uh, training or clinical training. I understand that there's some Houston ties back there in, in some yeah. of that. So tell me a little bit about where uh, you came from.
0: I moved around a lot as a kid, but eventually settled in Houston. So I grew up uh, in Friendswood near the Space Center and went to college at Rice and then medical school at Baylor. Finally left Houston uh, for residency at the University of Kansas. Um, So that was my first foray really outside of the Houston area. So I still follow the Houston sports teams. I'm a Houstonian through and through for sure.
1: I feel um, so sorry for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's been a rough couple of years, you know, the, yeah. course, the cheating stuff, but, but we'll survive. We'll be back. <laughs> Kansas, and then afterwards did my rhinology fellowship at OHSU, Portland, Oregon, with him. And then I came to Vanderbilt afterwards, right out of fellowship. And I've been here for uh, four or five years at this point. Excellent. And And it
1: looks like you've sort of been interested in this whole cytokines, mucus, um, and linking it to some sort of clinical outcomes. Give me a little bit of background about that interest. Where did that come from? And how does this sort of, is this, you know, the big picture of all these studies coming together? What are your hopes, your goals for all of these studies?
0: I think that Right now, we have such an ability to obtain really granular biologic data um, at a level and a scale that we haven't been able to do before. And I think one of the challenges in rhinology in general, especially when we look at, say, um, our colleagues in otology and whatnot, is we, we have very few like objective measures of disease. And the ones that we do have are not very good. I mean, CT scans have mixed correlations, uh, like CT scoring, for example, uh, You know, endoscopy scores, all also kind of all over the place. And I think the hope is, is that maybe by obtaining more granular biologic data, we'd, we'd have more objective measures by which we could quantify disease and, and potentially even map out the future course of disease. And I think that's really what gets us excited. is it, you know, is there a cytokine profile? Can we put a sponge in someone's nose, mix it up and and, and get some personalized cytokine profile that then we can kind of say, Hey, you, you know, may need multiple surgeries in the future, you know, really kind of set expectations early on or hey you might be a good candidate for a biologic and maybe that's the first thing we go to or hey, maybe we can maybe just try budesonide rinses, less interventional. And, you know, you may be responding very well to that. And and so just kind of teasing out the future course of disease based on these inflammatory biomarkers, and, and just trying to really target patient care and try to predict outcomes in a more fruitful way.
1: So this whole idea, as you mentioned, was to try to find some like mucus cytokines that then you can correlate to, I guess, for this particular study is, you know, how many surgeries That they've had. So, my understanding is that you were able to put like the small a sponge within the middle meatus at the beginning of their surgery. Now, were these patients like recruited specifically for this study? And then if so, it looks like you had a little bit over 300 patients for this particular study. Preoperatively, what kind of treatments were they on and and how did you, did you try to standardize that? Then that might help us understand like what your findings were ultimately.
0: Yeah. So I think prior to surgery, really the main exclusion criteria is that none of these patients were on oral steroids within four weeks of surgery, but they were all on you know topical nasal steroid sprays, rinses, irrigations, kind of what we would consider comprehensive medical management prior to surgery for chronic rhinosinusitis. The patients were sort of recruited as part of this ongoing tissue repository that mm-hmm. we've been doing at Vanderbilt for several years in conjunction with my colleague, Dr. Turner and Dr. Chandra. And this was kind of one offshoot of that, but but certainly there's other sort of papers and projects that we've sort of done with this group of patients, maybe not this exact group, but maybe subsets of those patients as well.
1: And so for those who don't collect secretions, right, and they're just clinicians operating, is this some sort of special sponge that your lab makes or is it commercially available so that, you know, is there going to be some potential future application uh, that maybe even a general clinical otolaryngologist may be able to do?
0: they're just these polyurethane sponges that are, uh, you know, available, you know, we, we just kind of ordered them from a supply company. But uh, essentially, I mean, you could potentially use like a mirror cell or something like that as well to do this. And there's nothing particularly fancy about the collection method. So that's definitely the, the hope. I mean, the procedure itself is something that you could feasibly do even in the office. And I think that's what kind of gets us excited is, you know, we're doing this in the OR to kind of validate the method. But you could imagine similar to how we get a CT scan for a patient, and there's in-office CT scanners. I mean, there could be an in-office cytokine assay where you, you know, put a sponge in, you spin it down. There's essentially an ELISA that would give you some kind of profile of, you know, what cytokines are present within that mucus, and then you could use that for potentially clinical decision making at the point of care. We're certainly not there right now, but that's kind of what the hope would be.
1: Yeah, actually, Nawid, no, I actually see it even more simple. So like how um, many of us are still collecting pus, you know, or purulent secretions, right? You just collect it and then you send it off and then have a company completely process the whole thing. So really your job is just to maybe just collect the secretions, put it in, you know, some sort of holding buffer and then send it off. And then you just get a readout or, a, and so I think there it makes it a very viable clinical option once you sort of people like yourself sort of do the background of understanding what cytokines and you know things to look at and so forth. So that does bring me to one of the, the questions I was thinking about when I looked at your paper is that you had like a number of cytokines that you had listed that you guys looked at. How did that panel of cytokines come from? Was that just a pre-multiplex array or did you, based on other studies that you guys have done, Sort of come up with this profile of cytokines?
0: The kit itself is is, um, part of one of those multiplex arrays that we have, but the cytokines themselves are sort of trying to capture a mix of type 1, type 2, type 3 cytokines. So we were kind of capturing all of that, all of those different signals This set, we've actually kind of expanded on in some of the newer patients that we're recruiting into the study. The the profile's gotten a little larger, but these are sort of the ones that we have that are common to all patients off the shelf, but, but sort of designed to try and pick up on what we think are the important signals.
1: Got it. And then just remind us, how did you exactly define, because I think you looked at two kind of big groups clinically, CRS with and without nasal polyps. How was that defined?
0: Just essentially by visual inspection, nasal endoscopy. The, at the time of surgery? The time of surgery, yeah. Okay. And just kind of classifying at that time. So I think we probably err more on the you know polyp side. I mean, if there's polypoid changes or frank polyps, <laughs> I think we kind of lump that in to the CRS with NP group.
1: Yeah, I've, I've had situations where, you know, at the time of surgery, that's just sort of polypoid changes, but not frank polyps. And then maybe in their post-operative care, it becomes more obvious. Initially, one would think that that's an easy clinical differentiator, but sometimes it's not so clean cut. So that's what I was kind of asking about. Associated with that, you mentioned, although briefly, and I didn't see much analysis on it, that you included aspirin-exasperated respiratory disease patients, as well as allergic fungal rhinosinusitis patients, but I didn't see that you broke them out. And I didn't see that you told us exactly how many patients of those different subgroups were included. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And were there enough to do some sort of subgroup analysis that maybe you didn't have an opportunity to share in the main manuscript?
0: There were I have to look back at the actual numbers, but um, I, I believe about 30 to 40 in you know, each group within the, the overall population. We didn't do any kind of subgroup analysis. And, and part of that was kind of by intent, just keep the focus on using cytokines alone and not trying to sort of incorporate other measures. One of the things that one of the prior papers that we did sort of incorporated cytokines and clinical diagnosis categories, and we'll talk a little bit about the stats later, but sometimes what happens when you try to mix the two is when you have something like AERD, which we know uh, generally is, you know, almost like a prototypic type two disease, same thing for AFRS. I mean, those type two markers are off the charts, can often mask the impact of the cytokine itself, because you have one variable AERD that is so type two driven and linked and associated with that, that the actual type two markers kind of fall out of the model. When you're doing the statistical analysis, you can kind of bias your results a little bit when you do that. And so what we really wanted to do in this paper is just say, you know, if you got this, this, there's this future state where you send off the sponge and you get this cytokine profile back, what can you do just with that in terms of maybe getting some understanding as to if a patient will have a higher chance of needing revision surgery?
1: Some of the take-home messages that you had was that you did an initial, hey, let's look at cytokines and if they're related to the number of revision surgeries in something that's a little bit easier to understand, like a a univariant analysis, right? And you found a couple of cytokines, I believe IL-21, IL-3, IL-5, and you associated with certain revisions. And that made sense. But one thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about and help people who want to dive in a little bit further into your manuscript to better understand is this whole PC analysis, the principal component analysis, and why you guys did that, and then... And you talk about these loading for those of us who aren't in stats. Can you explain a little bit more about that? And when we go to interpret these tables, is there like a layman's way of sort of explaining some of this to us and why you did that?
0: Let's just back it up a little bit to just cytokines in general. And one of the challenges, I think, with cytokines that we were talking about earlier is that cytokines are correlated with a lot of different things, ERD status and asthma status and whatnot. The type 2 cytokines themselves are correlated with each other. And so what happens is if you try to put in correlated variables into a regression model, it, it essentially will just pick the one that is the most prototypic of that group of cytokines. So you might have all of these different type 2 cytokines that are important, but maybe IL-5 is sort of the most prototypic cytokine based on the variance pattern. And so it'll just kind of pick that and ignore the contribution of everything else. So it kind of leads to a very biased and myopic sort of view of the contribution of the cytokine to the ultimate outcome. And so, one sort of strategy to get around the fact that cytokines are correlated, and I guess not only are they correlated, but they also, you know, they're feedback loops on themselves and they are Mm -hmm. all sort of regulating each other. And so, it's really that like milieu that's important rather than just the absolute level of if one is necessarily high or low. What principal component analysis is, is essentially a way to create a set of uncorrelated variables from these different cytokines. It's a data transformation technique that is essentially creating a subset of variables that are linear combinations of all of the input variables. And so that sounds like a handful, but the best way to, I think to think about it is if imagine a like a three-dimensional scatter plot and there's X, Y, and Z axis, you can rotate those axes to fit the data better. And then the your new axes would actually be some of the x axis, the y axis and the z axis. Uh, visually, it's a little easier to show that but basically every principal component has some contribution from all of the cytokines. But what generally happens when you do the analysis and in sort of table three of the paper, you see the different loadings, which you end up seeing is that certain cytokines are heavily loaded on certain principal components. And so we use that to basically say that this principal component is enriched or is reflective of this particular cytokine or this particular group of cytokines. And that way, it's sort of a way to take all of this intercorrelated cytokine data and transform it into a smaller subset of variables that are not correlated, and and so that's one of the advantages of principal component analysis. Is the way the math works out under the hood is that the principal components that you get are all uncorrelated, and so the property is really what we want from this transformation.
1: Is it fair to call these you know instead of using a, a statistical term like principal component? It, is it I mean, can, is it just like groupings? Like if you plot in each of the individual levels of cytokines, and then you sort of then looked at on this three-dimensional graph, and you found groupings of these cytokines, right? Because we see this sometimes, this principal component analysis with like some of the microbiome data that people have come out with, or certain bacteria is associated with certain groups. So it's kind of like groupings, is that right, of certain combinations of cytokines that are unique?
0: Yeah, that's one way of, of looking at it is that it's, it's essentially creating yeah, groups of cytokines that are, uh, I guess, moving together or, or maybe okay. are, are related together, but it, it's not necessary. And you, we see that in our paper too, that each cytokine has to only be in one. They can yeah. show up in, in multiple ones, but you tend to see that the highest loadings are only within one or two principal components.
1: Okay. Based on that analysis, can you tell us just some of the take-home messages that someone who takes care of chronic rhinosinusitis patients should walk away with after looking at your your paper?
0: You know, some of the key findings were things that you may you know, already be familiar with or that clinicians may already be familiar with. So for patients with nasal polyposis, we saw that high levels of type two cytokines did seem to associate with higher numbers of revision surgery, particularly L5 and 13. That definitely fits in with the explosion of biologics that are targeted towards these types of cytokines and the the success that those biologics have had in subgroups of patients with nasal polyposis. For patients with chronic sinusitis without nasal polyps, the picture was a little bit more mixed. And I think that also kind of fits with our thoughts that that disease process is probably more heterogeneous than chronic sinusitis of nasal polyposis. And so we still saw that IL-5 was uh, high levels of IL-5 were negatively impacting revision rates in that group. But some of the other type 2 cytokines didn't really have that same effect. The thing that sort of popped out that we thought was really interesting, and I think we're sort of looking at what's the future of this type of analysis, you know, what would we really like to focus on would be the fact that In both groups, both chronic sinusitis with polyps and without polyps, we saw that low levels of IL-10, IL-12, and IL-21. all associated with increased rates of revision surgery. And so IL-10 is thought to have some anti-inflammatory or or regulatory effects. And there've been a couple of papers, particularly from China, that have sort of shown that um, low levels of IL-10 seem to be associated with more treatment-resistant disease. So there's a thought that maybe having poor regulatory mechanisms could and not just I guess an absence of regulatory cytokines versus just having pro inflammatory cytokines could also be a way by which treatment resistance occurs. Mm-hmm. The treatment strategy for that, should that pan out, would be, you know, obviously very different. You'd be trying to supplement people with anti inflammatory cytokines versus suppressing pro inflammatory cytokines, which has kind of been what all the biologics have been doing. So it's sort of flipping that paradigm a bit. That's something that was common to both types of chronic sinusitis and maybe kind of a more common pathway by which we could treat chronic sinusitis in general versus all these different subtypes.
1: I've been very interested in understanding allergic fungal rhinosinusitis. And one of the observations that I have made that we published on was that allergic (coughs) fungal rhinosinusitis is associated with a significant downregulation of an antimicrobial peptide called histatins. Looking at that, you'll see that IL-21 is one of the most potent regulators of antimicrobial peptides. And so we hypothesize that that's one of the problems with AFRS is that they have a limited ability to upregulate antimicrobial peptides. And so we're investigating that. But I think that that may be a common theme dysregulation of the innate immune response. To me, I also found that that was a really interesting observation that you guys made, that there seems to be linking some sort of possible dysregulation of innate immunity associated with all of these chronic rhinosinusitis. So I agree with you, I think that'll be a very interesting area. And I think it sort of builds on some of the subgroups that you guys have focused on over the years, older women, uh, CRS without nasal polyps, bronchiectasis, neutrophilic picture. And so again, that sort of that theme uh, that we're seeing. So I'm really excited to see where some of your further cytokines and maybe analysis goes as you guys do more research. So where do you go from here? What is your next step? You kind of alluded to some of the limitations of the study. Obviously, it's very hypothesis generating, but trying to really put the big picture together. But you know, where where do you guys go from here? What's your next question?
0: Yeah, so I think that here, we essentially did a fancy version of like a case control study, because we're kind mm-hmm. of looking at the exposure in the past, we're looking at the outcome in the past. And, and, and there's some, you know, obviously some issues with looking at prior surgeries as a marker of recalcitrance, because you don't know where these people are going to end up. And if you're catching them on their first surgery or their third surgery, you know, the people who are having their first surgery are going to have their third surgery. And that's just in the future. And we don't know, you know, as part of this too, we're, we're sort of collecting ongoing data on these patients. And, and we've been following some of these patients now for almost a decade. I think we've kind of started data collection in like 2013 or 2014. And so it, it's been a while now. The next phase I think is to look at some of these outcomes prospectively once we have that Longitudinal follow-up data and see which patients had treatment failure defined by you know medication use or transition to biologics or revision surgery or regrowth of polyps or other types of interventions, and then seeing you know do some of these same findings pan out in that population. Do we Mm -hmm. still see that? You know, this low IL-10, IL-21 group also shows some prospective treatment resistance. Do we see the same type two weighting in CRS with nasal polyps and not as much so with non-polyp patients? Yeah, I think those are kinds of the questions that would be interesting, but we kind of wanted to at least start to look at this question with the data that we had. And, and we kind of allude to this in the paper as well, but, you know, even the prospective study in our current environment, the way the study is designed, where we're not necessarily restricting or controlling future treatments to patients. I and mean, a lot of these patients are probably the treatment failure patients are going to get shunted towards biologic therapy. Yeah. Not, not so it's really going to change. Like we're not going to have patients that we just kind of follow for 10 years and just see their polyps grow. And we're going to do things with them. We're going to have them on biologics and that's going to alter their cytokine of profile. So if, you know, if we wanted to resample these patients, for example, and see how things have changed, that's going to Complicate things, so yeah. So I think that it's both good and bad that we have these targeted interventions. I think that's why it was still kind of important for us to do this type of analysis because I think there's some value to looking retrospectively. You know, even a prospective study, even though on paper it's a higher level of evidence, um, you know, still has some issues. And I I agree.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very challenging question you're asking, and then of course trying to do human studies where other interventions. And of course, some people may follow up someplace else or move. And so it's a very challenging study that you're trying to embark on. But definitely, even if you're able to capture whatever cohort you can with some sort of prospective study, I think you may be able to learn a lot. I wanted to thank you for your time and we you've done some great work and would love to check in on you maybe a couple more years again and just have you as a repeat invited guest and telling us about the the studies that you guys have going on and what you're doing specifically. And again, thank you for your time and looking forward to future studies.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's always a blast to be on the pod. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Minology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley, or of the sponsors.